this is the very last Playbook podcast, where leaders from inside and outside sport have shared pragmatic advice for us for leading and managing through changing times in the last two crazy years of our industry. Today, as I mentioned, is our very last final show. And look, I know I said that last time, but a story came up that was so compelling and so related to everything we've covered that we decided to finish off with one more final show. Come back tour, if you like. So I'm confronted daily with the challenges of generational shift as a dad of two kids, but also the opportunities that provides for seeing things, the ways in which my kids view the world differently. And we all know we could use a bit of positivity right now. I find myself thinking a lot about the impact that new generations coming into our workforce might have on the world of business, both in general and specifically, of course, the sports industry. What if you've only ever watched a sport on YouTube or just grown up with the idea that you could send a message directly to the Prime Minister in a heartbeat, whether or not she or he might choose to read it? I guess, will there be a tipping point when we're all just more concerned about climate change than, than climbing the corporate ladder full stop? So I met somebody recently I thought could offer us a really unique perspective to start to understand some of these areas. Sure, it's a straw poll of one, but it's pretty impressive straw nonetheless. Will Gaffney's the founder of cricket charity Bat for a Chance, and he's also relatively recently turned 17. As Tony Simpson told us on a recent pod, Mark Zuckerberg was running Facebook at 25, and, and age isn't really the barrier it once was. Thanks to the charity's chair, Omar Khan, for the intro. I hope this will be a really fun listen. Well, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. How are you? All right, I think. I've um, I've survived day one of Sports Pro Live. Day two's cracky on downstairs, and we've scampered into what I think is actually the ballroom at the Oval to... uh, to record this, which is very appropriate. Um, so listen, let's start off um, right at the beginning. So how and why and when did you start a charity? Um, yeah, so great question. And to um, take you back to where it all began for me, uh, was on cricket tour in Sri Lanka, um, aged 11 at the time. I went out there with my dad. I was really lucky to be invited out there in, in the first place. We played in some awesome grounds, a couple of um, university stadiums and the test ground in Colombo. And then on the complete flip side of things, played in the middle of nowhere, in candy, on a coconut mat, being told not to go into the outfield because, you know, you're worried about snakes and all sorts. Um, so when you're hitting a boundary, that becomes pretty, pretty difficult. But anyway, in that game in Candy, the big thing that I noticed was one, how cricket is a very different game in Sri Lanka yeah. to what it's like here in the UK. And two, the lack of equipment um, that these kids had um, when they were playing. So they were, you know, unpadding and um, changing pads, swapping pads between the the, uh, the players at the crease um, yeah. compared to us who all had our own kit, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where sort of, I guess, back for a chance all, all began for me. And then reflecting on the tour a couple of years later um, at 14, which is three years ago now, if my maths is right, I somehow gained the courage to um, send out some emails late at night um, and come up with this idea of um, Bat for a Chance, which is essentially um, a cricket kit recycling charity, amongst many other things. So that had obviously stayed with you for three years. Yeah. It was a very powerful image, I think, um, one, the joy and the smiles that cricket was bringing these people from yeah. a pretty difficult background as well. And two, the contrast between how cricket is perceived and played in Sri Lanka to potentially what it's perceived and, and who it's played by in the UK. 
So, you know, even talking to you now, I still have that image of the smiles that they were playing with whilst I was batting in the field, etc. And yeah, again, as you say, a very, very powerful image. So, so my son's, um, how old is he? He's 14 and a half, going 15. Mm-hmm. And if I think about my son sending random emails in the middle of the night, <laughs> if he doesn't know, um, I'm not too sure. I think about that. So, so had you talked to your folks about the idea at this point? Uh, no, um, <laughs> <laughs> to be straight. I think one of the big things that I'm very keen of is I don't like to sort of make a song and dance of something where I don't have any proof of what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and sort of put pressure on myself when I don't need it. Um, So I waited sort of three, four months down the line until I actually had some leads, some concrete people who were interested in in the concept, etc. before actually looping in my parents, which was a pretty interesting conversation at the dinner table. (laughs) Um, Take us back there, go on. to To the conversation? Yeah. I think it went a bit like, um, so Will, what have you been doing on your laptop for a stupid amount of hours all this, all this time? And I go, uh, just a, a, a little, a little project that I'm working on. They sort of press me, uh, just need to tell them a little bit more. Um, and I go, actually, I've got a meeting with this chap called Alex Reese, who's a, a founder of another cricket charity, um, which works in Sri Lanka in, um, in a week and a half's time. And he wants to speak to me about this. And my mum sort of goes, oh my gosh, what have you got me into? And then two, I should probably join you on this call just to make sure you don't look like an idiot. So that's pretty much how the conversation went, I guess. That's fantastic. And so tell us, you know, that's, that's a few years ago now. It's sort of three, three years ago now. Yeah. Where, where's the charity got to? What, what do you, how would you frame what you do day in and day out now? The charity's come a, a very long way since that conversation three years ago to date we've supported over 30 causes in five Mm -hmm. different continents around the world sending cricket kit to everywhere places where i didn't even think cricket would be played like bosnia greece the lebanon etc and then also like your classic cricketing countries like islands across the west indies Mm -hmm. here in the uk of course back to sri lanka pakistan recently so we've we've sent cricket kit all over the place. We are still, in essence, a cricket kit recycling charity. So we collect and store cricket kit from around the UK, um, down where we're based in Sussex. Is, is that from donations or is that from clubs or individuals or, you know, from organisations that might have some stock that's, that they don't need anymore or a blend of all of them? What's that? Yeah, it's a blend of all of them. Um, we have sort of three main uh, incomes, I guess you can call it, of cricket kit. One being suppliers and manufacturers. So the big brands, uh, i got to say a massive thank you to Missouri uh, whilst I got the opportunity. They've been really supportive. Um, so brands like Missouri, etc., and Painter will send um, quarterly donations. So any slight misprints or stuff that's been sent back will come straight down to us. Cricket shops like AJ Fordham Sports down here in London, mm-hmm. um, not too far away. Um, they host cricket collection centres at the at the stores and also encourage people who are coming in to buy new cricket kit to bring their old stuff with them to oh, donate. Okay. And then, of course, cricket clubs, village cricket clubs, yeah. county cricket clubs up and down the country where the heart of the game is really, really being played. And clubs have got the opportunity to host a kit collection centre. Mm-hmm. Um, you go up on our website um, and essentially we send you some um, big posters to sticker up a black, uh, great big black uh, recycling bin mm-hmm. um, with and encourage all your members to donate any spare stuff they've got. Fantastic. So you come a long way in quite a short amount of time, yeah. clearly. How do you balance all of that? Because, so you're 17, right? Yeah. And you're still at school. Yeah. Um, and exams? A-levels. 
Oh, yeah. How does that work? I think I'm still figuring out. Uh, <laughs> but it's a bit. Like lower six or upper six? Lower six. Okay. So, uh, first year of A levels, um, although it's coming to a, a finish pretty soon. I think balancing it is key because you can't ignore the fact that I've still got schoolwork, if that makes sense. So, I do all of my charity stuff after prep or, mm-hmm. or, or schoolwork. Yeah. So that means I'm probably on a on a Zoom call at eight o'clock in the evening to right. ten o'clock in the evening instead of you know a typical business day which might be um, I don't know eleven thirty to twelve thirty, and I think finding a balance not only between schoolwork and charity work but schoolwork charity work personal life enjoying yourself and your own cricket and my own cricket yeah, yeah. is really important and it's a great big juggling act but. Um, Again, very thankful to my parents for being supportive and um, also the school are very handy with sort of giving me the odd day off here and there like today. Oh, I feel bad now. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing thing to be balancing. And I guess it's very similar to, you know, I'm balancing right now. I balance kind of working worlds, family worlds, uh, my own pottering out for a run when I can. Yeah. My son's going through... Uh, fourth year exams I need to nip home slightly early tonight to help with the German oral practice you know it's just we all leading any business of any type we all have that kind of balance what do you what do you notice about those sorts of balance challenges when when they occur to you as opposed to somebody like me who might be slightly older in the tooth do you know at the end of the day I'm imagining that the A-levels can't move right if if we want to change a business strategy to give ourselves a little bit more time we can a-levels are a movable feast. So does that mean the charity has to move around the A-levels rather than the A-levels <laughs> move around the charity a bit? I think it depends on on who you're dealing with, actually, yeah. to be honest, because um, as a charity, we, we've we grown, as you, as you said, over the three years to a pretty significant position now where some of the organisations and parties that we're engaging with, we have to work around them just mm-hmm. because of their brand, their reputation, their name. Whether that's correct and right is, is another question. But... Um, it's a mixture of the two, I would say, you know, organising stuff around schoolwork, certainly. But, you know, when there's a big board meeting coming up yeah. or when we're meeting a senior executive, then school has to move. So I guess it kind of depends on on the scale of what we're doing. Oh, fair play to the school. What, let's call your school out just as a thank you. Um, the King's School, Canterbury. Right. OK. Well, yeah. um, tip of the hat to them. So, so look, when you're making those initial approaches or when you're in seeing the chief exec... Uh, at Missouri, say, what do they make of a 17-year-old coming in to see them? Like, do they know in advance? Um, and when you do go in, you know, does it take you a little bit of time to to get them to soften up and open up and treat you as a as a, as a, as a peer? I think at the start, definitely. So, and, th- and this is a really interesting conversation. So when I started the charity, mm-hmm. I didn't put my name and my age behind it because one, I, you know, I'm not doing it for the recognition. Yeah. And, and two, I was afraid that, being 15, 16, people would just go, oh, he's got no idea what he's on about. Why yeah. is this, you know, young kid banging on my door a hundred times? And then I changed my approach and said, actually, you know, at the top of my email, I'll go, I'm Will, 17-year-old founder, because it's a USP in a way. Yeah. And also it just attracts eyes. So people now at the moment will know that, you know, I'm this 17-year-old kid and they're going to meet this 17-year-old kid. And sort of when you walk in the door or you jump on Zoom, you've always got that initial five minutes where essentially they're trying to suss you out and see whether you've, <laughs> you're you some scam or whatever. So how do they do that? It's usually sort of, I guess you could almost call it like a job interview. They'll go, right. what's this? What do you think of that? And then 
at times people will put you in a scenario or sort of press you quite hard about some of the work that you've done, whether that be the logistics behind it or, you know, I'll say, so one of the major, you know, problems that the charity can sometimes come into or or struggle with is customs. So getting kit into some of these countries where customs can be corrupt, can be really, really difficult. And they'll go, okay, well, you've said that now. Mm How do you get around that? How have you solved that issue, et cetera? Um, instead of just saying, oh, he's probably got a solution like they probably would to a yeah, 35-year-old yeah. Yeah, yeah. senior exec or a 40-year-old senior exec. So then I give the example of bringing on board Virgin Atlantic as our distribution partner. And they go, oh, okay, he's, he's actually yeah, yeah. serious. That's fascinating, isn't it? Just the the fact that people aren't necessarily inclined, they'll, they'll take the meeting, but aren't necessarily inclined to mm. give you the benefit of the doubt. It, it's funny, you know, it really chimes with when we were setting up our business two circles and um, those early thoughts you had in terms of where I'm going to keep my name or, or my yeah. age back. You know, we were, we were probably in a similar vein trying to come across as slightly bigger than we were mm-hmm. actually. And, and sort of trying to, I, I guess was portray a bigger organisation behind us than there was. Not not to mislead anyone, but just generally in the way we yeah. talked about the business. And then actually found the more we talked about the fact that it was at our kitchen table, <laughs> uh, the more we talked about the fact that there were three of us who'd set up, two of us were married and we were juggling the kids as well. Like, actually, people warmed to it. And, yeah. and the more they start to say, oh, how's the business going? Before you talked about what, how's the business going? How are you juggling this? How are you juggling that? And... um almost kind of letting people into your story a little Mm. bit for us was really powerful. I completely agree. I think us as a charity being transparent as to sort of where we are, who we have on board and then where we want to go Mm -hmm. is, um, is really key and crucial. And I think transparency is one of our, our big sort of themes because I'm young and people should know that I'm young. It shouldn't make people's perceptions of me or the charity any different likewise the size of the team or where we were a year and a half ago two years ago or a problem that we face so yeah i completely agree and i've been there in the kitchen table (laughs) (laughs) um having to do the washing up afterwards as well so let's talk more broadly then about about cricket Mm. we've had beth barrett wilds from from ecb and the hundred on the on the pod talking about the fact that you know, cricket's come a long way in a short amount of time and it, of course there have been things come out of the course of the last year that shows it's got a long way to go as well. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think I'm right in, in saying that you've had a lot of really important doors open to you in the work that you do. I think you've done a bunch of stuff, for example, with Glamorgan, yeah. who've really helped you get your message out. How have you, how have you found that as a, as a small charity working in the cricket machine, working with the cricket mm. machine? It's been really interesting, especially as you say, over the past year, year and a half almost, yeah. what's been coming out of the of the English cricketing space in particular and Scottish to an extent as well, to be fair. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually almost opened up more doors to us because people are now more inclined to okay. give smaller charities that could offer them a better diversity inclusion opportunity or increase participation and growth a go. And they need organisations like us, like ACE, like Chance to Shine, to get involved and properly start to become really active within the space and actually talk about it a bit more and not be afraid to to say, actually, we've partnered up with this smaller charity because at the end of the day, we do do some really cool work, which will hopefully, you know, increase numbers within the game, etc. So actually, I think I've found over the, since what, what came out a year and a half ago, 
I found that it's opened up more doors to us. Perhaps those doors, people should have been more welcoming beforehand, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless, we're grateful for the opportunities that we're given, et cetera. For sure. And as we talk about corporate machines, um, you mentioned board meetings. Yeah. Right. And um, really grateful to uh, the chair of the charity, Omar Khan, for intro um, to make this conversation happen. So um, Omar might, hopefully wouldn't mind me saying, you know, what was it that made you um, see the need for some grey hair? (laughs) I think that young and old complement each other quite well. And again, I hope Omar doesn't mind me calling him old. And I've got to say a massive thank you to him because he's been incredibly instrumental in the charity's growth over the past two years. But, you know, yes, I come from a younger perspective, probably a bit more energetic and, and eager and sort of chomping at the bit, essentially. And and then someone like Omar, who's an experienced sports marketer, been around the block, can sort of just guide me and mould me so that I don't get overexcited and, and send an email where actually if we'd waited a day or so, reflected, chatted internally, we could have done a better job because... I'm young and that brings a completely different perspective, I think, at least to the sporting space. But that doesn't mean that I don't need a, you know, a steady hand on the shoulder telling me to calm down here and there. What, what, what do you think drives that steady hand at the tiller that Omar can provide? Is it his experience having made those mistakes himself? So that's what it provides to you? I think it's experience and sort of just knowing the industry and yeah. almost who we're dealing with mm-hmm. um, or knowing corporate life to an extent. So I definitely say time in, in the charitable sector, time in the sporting sector, time in just biz- in the business world um, in general is, is very valuable. And I don't think you can, you can underestimate that. And I'm always, always looking for people just to like, take five minutes of their time and ask yeah. them two or three questions so that I can learn and grow as well. I love just having conversations like this, which are interesting. You chat about topics, which you might not in a, in a, in a pitch uh, or something along those lines. So what, what do you think Omar would say you've taught him? It's <laughs> a very good question. Actually something I think I'll ask him after this, but um, I think Omar would say, Firstly, I think the biggest thing Omar's taught me is if you don't ask, you don't get. So yep. don't be afraid to put yourself out there, etc. And then <laughs> maybe one of the things which um, which I've taught Omar is the power of social media mm-hmm. and actually how important our socials are and interacting with people our age, my age, sorry, yeah. is and not to to just underestimate people coming from a much younger yeah, yeah. or an experienced background. Yeah. So what, what role let's just to dive off in that for mm. a moment. What, what, how do you use social? It's a good question. We use it as our mainstream of providing information uh-huh. to those who would be interested in a charity. So if you want to know what's going on with Bat for a Chance and where we've been, where we've just sent kit, who's just sponsored us, yeah. um, who our ambassadors are, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, yeah. that's where you go. Because it's the easiest way in in the modern digital world to get information out there without having to go through a publisher, without having to go through a journalist, to have access to a wide audience and also do it instantly. And I think that's one of the best things. I can text Sabah, who's one of our trustees, who manages our socials you know, on a, on a Friday night at 5.30 and go, would you mind sticking this up on Instagram and Twitter? Maybe 
put this in the caption or something and tag X, Y, Z. And she'll go, yeah, sure, done. And it's, it's done in a space of 25 minutes. And it also allows people to go into the day-to-day workings of Back for a Chance and what, what it takes to make a kit drop happen in Barbados, for mm-hmm. instance. Has it helped you find places to distribute the kit as well as people to support? I think it's actually helped us find people to give us the kit okay. and to donate um, to the charity. So more. where do you find the people to, to give the kit to? I'm a big believer in we should be proactive in yes. our approach yeah, yeah. to help people. So we shouldn't be sat back um, waiting for people to come to us and say, oh, I would like cricket kit. I'm based in Uganda, for mm-hmm. instance. How can we make this happen? I spend, you know, probably between half an hour to an hour and a half a day scrolling through Google or mm-hmm. social media, etc., looking at potential charities, potential cricket club organisations that into even two, three years down the line, we could be looking to support. Got it. So I would say we're actually more proactive in going out there and looking for people to send cricket kit to than sitting back and wait, waiting for them to come to us. So I guess you've got to, you know, if, if the profile and recognition via social media, the charity is increasing, which would mean the amount of kit coming in is mm. increasing, then your your demand has to increase. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. And we're in a very comfortable position and, and fortunate position at the moment where our supply of cricket kit exceeds the demand and the kit that we're sending out there, which actually puts us in a, in a really lovely position where we can respond to these requests. So, for instance, Afghan refugees here in the UK. We've done a lot of Afghan refugee work here in the UK and across Europe mm-hmm. since probably... September last year, um, supporting over 15,000 Afghans across the, across of Europe. Um, a lot of that has been, hi, I'm flying out to Kosovo, for instance, on Saturday. I get the, that message on a Tuesday. I need the kit by the Friday. How can you make this happen? Who have you got? Where, I can, where can I pick it up from? These guys really, really need cricket kit. Yeah. You know, cricket is their, their hope at the moment. And working out how we're going to do that but because we've got the extra stock and we've got the extra cricket kit we can help and we can do that kind of thing which is what the charity is all about really let's go back to the the board meeting strand then sure what does your board meeting look like um physical are they virtual how do you how do you make them happen physical i think we've all spent too long on zoom and on staring at screens for the past two years so and i like to get everyone together um in person because it allows you to read the room better as well um, and you, you know, you get to go out for a drink afterwards and get to know people personally. Again, that's something I think is really important, especially if they're a member of, of your, your trustees mm-hmm. board, or whatever you want to call it. We host them four times a year, okay. various places around the place, usually in London. Our board has got nine trustees and four special advisors now. Okay. So it's a big group. But that's done deliberately because as a charity, we don't have the resources or the funds to employ people to, you know, pay someone part time or have an army of volunteers who can help us out. Not yet. Not Well, yeah, hopefully in a couple of years time. So the board are really hands on and I really enjoy that. And they're all helpful in their own way and they're all very different. And I'm a big believer of diversity in the room will give you so many different perspectives as to what you're talking about, almost too many at times, to allow you to actually come up with the best possible solution. You know, if you've got six people from exactly the same demographic, from exactly the same lifestyle, from exactly the same, you know, all exactly the same age, you're going to get one idea. 
if you've got six people from completely different demographics, completely different lifestyles, completely different upbringings, you're going to get six you, different ideas. How have you found those people? We went through quite an extensive recruitment process mm-hmm. at the back end of 2021. It took us four months. So we were we were very selective yeah. and we pushed very hard on, on social media and, and through leveraging contacts and networks yeah. to find the right people that we wanted. We had over 50 plus applicants for the trustee positions alone wow. and sort of filtered through and went through almost a, a four stage recruitment process, which you could call excessive, but I think was well worth doing yeah. because we're reaping the rewards now. You know, we've had a brilliant, brilliant start to um, 2022 where we smashed all our Q1 targets. So again, I, I would much rather take four months and take my time to get the right people involved than take a month, slapdash, cool, you've got a good CV and you come. It's really interesting because you know, obviously the sports industry generally is having to go 10 steps forward to come 10 steps back in yeah. terms of addressing the diversity of its, its board structures and its, its broader employee base. Um, and frankly, walking through and trying to undo 30, 40, 50 years and more of, of, of having quite generic, similar people in, in these organisations. And you started an organisation from scratch in an industry, part of the sports space in cricket that traditionally has been some of the worst practice in this regard yeah. and then you've come at it completely new and been able to, to kind of set yourself up in the right way from the very start I mean you know I, I get a bit of flack because I send my kids to to uh, private school you're at a private school yeah. and, uh, and I guess it feels really important to me that my kids get to see the real world as yeah. opposed to just the and it sounds like you've worked really hard with that in terms of your trustee group so you're not you're not kind of working in a in a rose-tinted environment yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'll be the first person to say I come from a really lucky, fortunate background. I've had a really fortunate upbringing, as you say. But I think acknowledging that and not trying to sort of pretend it doesn't exist and pretend that you don't go to private school is really, really important. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it's a part of who you are. You can't hide where you come from, etc. So you might as well just be forthcoming and, and um, you know, as, as I said, acknowledge that position. Yeah, absolutely right. So it's funny, actually, that generation's been a bit of a theme, generational shift's been a bit of a theme uh, over the course of Sports Pro Live. So yesterday I was interviewing um, Tom Bean, the, the founder, one of the co-founders of wow. Castor. Yeah. Absolutely lovely guy, 31, set the business up now. Very Set cool. the business up at 25 with his younger brother, now 28, I think. In exactly the same way, really very clear about his own background from from in their environment, a working class family have put the right people around him to mm. broaden his knowledge. He's the same way, just from a different starting point. And I think the, um, I gather the, the head of social for Arsenal TV was here as well, who's 19. <laughs> it's just fantastic to sort of see us, us get maybe slightly less stale as, as an industry. Mm. Um, what do you think, not, not just yourself with the, the career charity, but, but, those mates of yours and those people you encounter in your journey, whether they're people you're helping or, or, or people who are helping you deliver from charity, what, what should we be cognizant of with tomorrow's leaders? Like what, what, how are you lot going to look different to, to those of us boarding <laughs> over the hill? I think you touched on the fact that Arsenal's social manager is 19. Yeah. And I think hopefully we'll see a massive increase in that kind of, um, age 
coming into the sporting world at fairly senior positions as, yeah, yeah. as well, I hope. It's like the Zuckerberg thing, right? Yeah, so exactly. Running Facebook. Because, as you say, it offers a completely different perspective and, and as I've sort of banged on about, why just have a load of people who are the same age leading businesses? How, how are you different, do you think, as a generation? Like, or is that just our old cliche thinking, <laughs> reframing these people we can't get our heads around? <laughs> I don't think we're different at all. But in a way, our inexperience and naivety almost helps us. Yeah. Um, and it sounds strange to say, but from experience, you might go, oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, that's not going to work. But if you're young and you don't have, you haven't had a, a negative experience with something, you're going to try it and you're just going to take the risk. And I think it's a little bit of a stereotype, but younger people tend to take more risks. And because we've got a little bit more time, we can afford to take those risks as well. So I definitely think that's that's one of the differences. And then the other thing I would say, and it's quite an interesting topic, is, um, you know, university these days. Um, I don't want to make an assumption, but certainly for my mum. So she didn't have to pay to, you know, to go to university, yeah. etc. At the time, it was free of cost. Now it's, you know, 30, 40 grand for three years in a qualification, a student debt, which you might not pay off for 15 years. Well, not if they move the interest rates like this. Yeah. You're going to. And that's a brilliant point. It, it looks like it's just going to go up and up and up. Yeah. So I think you've got younger people at looking for alternative ways to get into the professional world and mm-hmm. almost skip, skip that sort of ticking the box exercise, which I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I very, I'm very much a fan of. I think, you know, yes, ticking a box is important at times, A-levels, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can find an alternative road and pathway, which is going to be more exciting to do, and actually you might end up in a better position in five, ten years' time, go for it. So that means I have to ask you the question. <laughs> um, University. W- yeah. yeah. W- what, so, so is this... Is this a fantastic learning experience and will always be a sideline project for you? Or is it the kind of thing where you, you may well, I'm not going to hold you to it, <laughs> but you may well, if we talked in, in 15 months time, you may well be cracking on with this as your, as your long-term gig. I hope so, to be honest. It's very difficult to predict um, based on where we are as a charity at the moment. There's so many uncertainties around the position where we could be in 15 months time. And it's very easy to speak in hypotheticals, but I'd, I'd love to do it full time. I think, I think it would be a great experience and you don't have to go to university at 20. You can go at 30 and do a part-time degree. That's one of the brilliant things around the modern day world is there's so many different options and you can do an internship at a massive corporate and then you're one step on the ladder already. So I'm currently having that university conversation um, with my mum and I don't know. She's trying to persuade me to go, but who knows what will happen. I I think I would say, so I I went straight from school to uni and straight from uni to work and Mm. my my wife Claire was the same and we both look back and think somewhere along the line there, I wish we'd just taken a bit of time to reflect. That doesn't mean we wouldn't have wanted to go, but... You know, it's a wide old, crazy old world out there, and and just a little bit of um, a little bit of experience outside of of that kind of fairly formulaic conveyor mm. belt is is a really good thing and can help you reframe all sorts of things. What does a charity look like in five years' time? So, do you think it will be still be exclusively cricket? Do you think it will be um, you have bases around the world? Like when when you're awake at night not sending emails <laughs> to, to, to men you don't know um, what, like, 
what do you dream about? I just like to say men and women that, but um, very good point. <laughs> I think as a charity, we're looking to take the next step in our development through starting to fund projects. So not just doing the kit collection side of things and mm-hmm. sending causes, sending cricket kits to these fantastic causes, breaking down that barrier. But we want to be able to hopefully, you know, in five years time, be able to break down all of the barriers preventing access to cricket and the game. What does that look like? It looks like pitches, that looks like coaches, that looks like... Exactly that. So that looks like better surfaces and facilities mm-hmm. to play in, paying for coaches to come into schools and deliver the coaching free of cost, paying for transport to get people there, you know, and, the, and to give credit, the ECB have done a fantastic um, job of sort of outlining the barriers that are preventing yeah. participation in cricket. Um, so we've got a good a guideline there. And so... We don't want to do that just in the UK as well. You said bases all over the place. We want to do, um, we've outlined five countries to start with. So here in the UK, Barbados um, slash the Caribbean, where we've launched a fantastic project with Roland Butcher, um, who is the first black yeah, guy to play yeah. for England. Yeah. yeah. Pakistan uh, with Ebba Qureshi, who he founded and runs Fem Games. India, hopefully we'd love to do something where cricket is such a culture. And then, of course, Sri Lanka, where it all began for me uh, with the Foundation of Kidness, um, which is a brilliant charity based out there. So we've, we've, we're starting and have put a lot of the, the legwork in place to allow that to be able to, to happen, hopefully. Fantastic. It would be a lovely way to bring it back full circle, wouldn't it? To yeah. Back out in, in Sri Lanka at some point, opening an office or <laughs> hiring your first coach or yeah. whatever it might be. So look, thank you ever so much for taking a good chunk of time out of your morning. It's been fascinating. I feel inspired and old in, in, <laughs> in equal measure. What, what we tend to do to um, to close up the pods is is ask everyone who comes on whether they can sum up their main message <laughs> from uh, their time with us in 10 words or less. Right, so if you could sum that up in, in 10 words or less. I, I'm a bit, to be honest, I'm, my mental arithmetic is a bit dodgy, so often I'll, <laughs> I'll allow a few more than 10. But what would you say? Uh, you put me on the spot here. Um, That's the intention. <laughs> I would say what Omar has taught me in particular, if you don't ask, you don't get, and don't let your age or where you come from prevent you from trying. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on Thank you. sending those emails and, and making just a fantastic organisation happen. I, I, I do really believe you've only just begun. And if people want to get in touch with you, either because they've got kit they'd like to donate or, mm. or they've got... I don't know, they're working with a brand who might be interested in getting involved. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Hopefully if you type back for a chance into Google, our website will come up. As we touched on, check us out on Instagram and Twitter. Same again, just back for a chance. And hopefully you should also be able to find my contact details on there somewhere as well. Very good. So listen, well, it's been fantastic. Congratulations on all you're doing. Um, I'm sorry I pulled you out of school. (laughs) No, I'm happy. Uh, And thanks to the school for letting you out. And um, we're now let, going to let you in, loose in the Oval for the rest of the day. <laughs> so uh, I bet no responsibility for what happens next. Have a great day. Thanks Thank you very much, Matt. Cheers. Okay. So there we go. That genuinely is it for the playbook. I hope you all agree it was worth sneaking in an extra episode. I really enjoyed hearing from Will. So it's been two years of content, a bit of a labour of love, really. Don't forget you can download the latest CEO playbook 2022 on the playbook page of the Sports Pro website for free, as well as the entire back catalogue. A whole day's worth of playbook pods there for you in our original CEO playbook as well. If there's an issue that's challenging you in your role, now we've handled generational shift, I'd like to think there will be something there to help you along the way.
If you've enjoyed the pods or read the documents, you can find me at Matt Rogan Sport on Twitter, Instagram, and also on LinkedIn. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show, in particular Owen Connolly, Mike Long, John Abraham, Nick Meacham, to name but a few at the Sports Pro team. It's been a real pleasure to take part on the ride and good luck with everything you're doing in the businesses you all lead. Cheers. The Playbook podcast is published by SportsPro and is part of a wider series delivering agenda-free, pragmatic advice on how to navigate your organisation through change. To explore the library and find out about the Playbook Lab's residential executive training programme, head to sportspromedia.com slash playbook.